some of us, it's been something like 18 days together, is that right? And others, seven. A long time sitting and walking, chopping vegetables mindfully. being in this vast desert. And there have been, over the course of these days, talks on difficulty and suffering, on impermanence, on emptiness, that is anicca, dukkha, and anatta in different forms. And understanding each of these is a gateway to freedom. Tonight I'd like to speak further about freedom itself. The Buddha said that just as the great oceans have but one taste, the taste of salt, so all of the teachings of the Dharma have but one taste the taste of liberation or freedom. That is their purpose. And he went on, not merit, that is good deeds, or concentration, or stillness, or insight. None of these things is the purpose of this practice, not even insight or understanding. But the sure heart's release, this and this alone, is the reason for the practice that we do, for the teachings of awakening. So how are we using this retreat to explore freedom? A poem. Impatient to be on the road, the fire protection road, where Douglas fir and Douglas lily, bracken and sword fern teach me lessons in perspective. I'm a country girl again, only this time in a middle-aged, disabled body. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and fifteen minutes. That includes time resting with lizards sunning on the rock, writing down dream-remembered staring at Mount Barnaby, listening to woodpecker in the tree that harbors osprey's nest, wandering and listening to the unseen in the shadows and the fading light of evening. So our personal best here is less rather than more. We take the retreat time to stop doing, to find a note of rest between the notes, a Sabbath, a space between the world of activity and doing, to witness and listen and examine the very nature of mind and body and our life. And as we do so, we begin to see how dreamlike it all is. What happened to those past 18 days? or eight or seven days, the past is gone. The future, no matter how many thoughts you generate about it as you sit there, isn't here yet. The last sitting is gone, 
isn't it? Just disappeared like the sunset. Never again that sunset. Past disappears, future gone, not here yet. All there is is this evanescent present moment. And it's here for a moment and then changes. We begin to see the dreamlike quality of life. Now in the Mumankan, which is a famous Zen text for study, understanding, filled with some of the greatest stories of the Zen tradition, there's a story about Senjo. Jo means girl. Her name was Sen. Senjo was this young girl and about her father and mother. They lived in a remote village in China and had two daughters born to them. Senjo was the second. But when Senjo was a small girl, her older sister died. So all they had left in the family was this one daughter. Living next door, nearby, in the village, was a distant relative with a boy named Ochu. And Ochu was a very sweet young man, and Senjo's father used to tease them when they were little, saying, oh, you'll make a good marriage, you two, when you grow up, because they used to play together. And you know how children are, they believed it. And they kind of believed they were engaged, and in the course of it, their love deepened. That was in their minds. However, Sanjo was very beautiful, and as she grew older, she had a string of suitors coming. And finally, when it was time for her marriage age, her father, looking through all the suitors, chose, as was the custom of that time, the young man he thought would best be the husband for his daughter, Senjo, a young man from a neighboring village named Hinryo. And he called Senjo in and announced, I have chosen a husband for you, Hinryo. And she sat down and could hardly breathe and began to weep and was depressed and cast down extremely because she loved Ochu. And then the news she told a friend, and that friend told Ochu. And poor Ochu, his heart immediately felt like it was broken in two or plunged with a knife. And hastily that very night, he packed a few things to run from the village because he couldn't stand that loss and pain. He went down to the river put his few things in the boat and was about to cast off when he heard a rustling in the bushes. And to his shock and surprise, Senjo appeared with a few things gathered in a pack and said, I knew in my heart you were leaving and I could not let you run away, so I have come to join you. And he took her into the boat and they went a long way downriver to another faraway village where they made a home, grew a garden and crops, and where she, becoming pregnant, gave birth to two children. And five or six or seven years passed, and then Sanjo began to feel terrible about deserting her parents. She was the only child, 
and Ochu the same, he really longed for his village. They felt so far away, living alone, they had snuck out in the night. So they sold what they had and hired a boat to go upriver and take them back. And in the evening, just after this time, it had just about gotten dark, they arrived back in the village and pulled up to the dock. And the young man, Ochu, got out of the boat and walked to Sanjo's parents' house and knocked on the door and met her father. And her father was astounded to see him and terribly angry. And Ochu said, where, um, said, um, we've returned, we would like to see you. We've come back and we've brought grandchildren. And her father's eyes got wide and he said, are you mad? Are you mad? He was astonished and angry. He said, what girl are you talking about? My daughter has been sick in bed and unable to speak since the night that you left. So Ochu, who was very upset, said, no, no, she went with me. We started a new life. We have a family, two children we brought. Here, send your servant down to the dock. He will see. So in the dark, the servant went down to the dock to look and said, come, come, come back to your father. Meanwhile, Ochu went over to the house and peered into the window of the bedroom and saw lying there on the bed, to his surprise and shock, Senjo. And as he turned away, Senjo got up from the bed and the Senjo with the children came walking down the road and they ran toward one another as father and husband watched and they came together and embraced one another in one and were free. So this is the old Zen story. Now there are many levels to stories like this. The story of broken heart, or of the grave choices that each of us must make at certain times in our life, the story of exile, and splitting a part of ourselves, of our wholeness. And the koan that's asked at the end of this story is, who is the true Senjo? Sometimes it, the story is called Senjo and her soul are separated. But the real koan that's asked is, who is our true self? Now taking one central theme from this ancient story, there is a way in which this retreat is also the end of exile. For Senjo was an exile. And like Senjo, we have been split off from ourselves since childhood, Maybe before that, since ancient times, we've lost big parts of ourselves, our natural joy, our being. We have a hole in us, like a ghost. We cope, but there's a core of pain and disappointment in many. And in exile, 
we're at war, fighting what is, fighting how it should be, or how we should be, and how we were taught when people were critical, distant, abusive, thinking, well, that's not, we're not good enough. We have to be kinder, quieter, smarter, more enlightened, more successful, something. The way I am isn't okay. I'll put that aside. I'll be something else. We've all done that over and over. In big and painful ways, and in a hundred little ways. The scouts were in camp. In an inspection, the director found an umbrella neatly rolled beside the bedroll of a small scout. As an umbrella was not listed as a necessary item, the director asked the boy to explain. Sir, answered the young man with a weary sigh, did you ever have a mother? So there's that little story of a thousand little ways, but there are grave ways for many of us that our lives have been torn from us, like Senjo. And then we come on retreat, and sometimes it becomes a kind of grim duty to be on retreat, that we have to make ourselves better, more successful, quieter, smarter, more enlightened, and we're still playing out that program. Terribly painful. And often we don't know the full extent of our exile until we stop and feel and begin to return. Sometimes it's not until the tears come so that when the Buddha talked about this exile and separation in another long story I won't tell you, it says in the sutras, his hearers shed floods of tears and by reasons of their softness of heart became fully attentive and then understood freedom. This softness of heart, the ending of exile, lets a freedom begin to happen for us. Like that story I told in the first retreat of the Japanese soldiers that were lost on those islands in the Pacific, when they finally went to get them, instead of saying, oh, you fool, for thinking the war wasn't over for 10 years. They honored them. They thanked them for trying so hard to do something honorable, to care for their country. And in some way, we too need a gratitude. A gratitude for both Senjos in ourselves, for the part that was lost and the part like that little boy who tried so hard or that little girl for so long. Here we practice mindfulness, which is the end of exile. We allow ourselves to come home to a fuller and fuller range of our being in the body, an embodied awakening. The Buddha said, in this fathom-long body is found suffering, and liberation within this body and mind. And there's so many ways we've separated from our body, like Sanjo did. 
And as we sit, it comes back. First, sometimes in pain, the releases of energy, huge releases, the places we carry our tension, the old wounds, the pains of our body, the fact that we're aging. It's like somebody said in an interview, looking at the body and realizing you're not Michael Jordan and you'll never be Michael Jordan. And a kind of acceptance of all these parts of ourself. But if we allow this retouching, re-inclusion of all the parts of our body, there also re-arises pleasure and the taste of warm tea on a cool evening at 9.30 or 9.45 where you really taste the tea and the sunlight playing in the desert late in the afternoon where the cactus seemed to be made of light And the moment that you're doing walking meditation and you take a step and it feels like you're two years old again and it's the first step you've ever taken and all that aliveness comes back. So our mindfulness opens and allows us to reunite with this body as it is and not how it's supposed to be, but actually how it is just now with its pains and aging, and with its beauty and pleasure, all together. And this mindfulness allows a reuniting with our feelings. And so as we sit, there come waves of anger, and fear, and joy, and vast calmness, And we're asked to bow to each one and name it and make space for that as we make space to live in our body. We embrace a greater and greater truth of feelings, all of them. And the way we do this a lot is through our metta, to let the metta of the heart, the loving kindness, hold all the joys and all the sorrows. It's a big task to come back to ourselves. Once in the Andes, the mountain people invaded the lowlanders, and as part of their plundering, this tribe, they kidnapped a baby of one of the families and took the infant with them back up into the mountains. These lowlanders who lived In the Amazon jungle, didn't know how to climb the mountains. They didn't know the trails. They didn't know where to find the mountain people or how to track them in the steep terrain. Even so, they sent out their best party of fighting men to climb the mountain, bring the baby home. The men tried first one method of climbing and then another. They tried one trail and another. And after days of struggle, they had climbed only a couple of thousand feet in these vast mountains. Feeling somewhat helpless, the men prepared to return to the village below. As they were packing their gear for the descent, they saw the baby's mother walking toward them. They realized she was coming down the mountain in a place they hadn't figured out how to climb. And then they saw 
she had the baby strapped to her back. How could that be? One man greeted her and said, We couldn't climb this mountain. How did you do it when we, the strongest men of the village, were unable? And she shrugged her shoulders and looked back at them with tired eyes and said, It wasn't your baby. It wasn't your baby. And in the reclaiming of feelings, the reuniting as with the body, this task requires that kind of courage to bring back all that was lost, not by looking for it or making something, but by our willingness to be present for what is fully here in our experience. Then there's the mindfulness of mind. So many stories. How many stories have you told yourself about walking and sitting in the retreat and yourself as a yogi and the people around you and how tea is and how it's going to change your life and how it's not going to change your life and how worthy you are and how unworthy you are and what a great meditation teacher you'll be and how much you hate meditation in the same sitting, right? And how it will be and how it should be. And there's a kind of exile in this from ourselves all these stories about how it's supposed to be. A poem from Sharon Olds called I Go Back to May 1937. I see them standing at the formal gates of their college. I see my father strolling out under the ochre sandstone arch. See my mother with a few light books at her hip standing by the pillars. They are about to graduate to get married. They are kids. They are dumb. All they know is they are innocent. They would never hurt anybody. I want to go up to them and say, stop. Don't do it. She's the wrong woman. He's the wrong man. You're going to do things you cannot imagine you would ever do. You're going to do bad things to your own children. But I don't do it for I want to live, you see. I take them up like the male and female paper dolls and bang them together at the hips like chips of flint as if to strike sparks from them. And I say, do whatever you are going to do and I will tell the story of it. So many stories we hear as we sit about how it's supposed to be. This is the mind. And to come back to a wholeness with the mind isn't to change the story, but maybe to forgive all the stories. Like the two ex-prisoners of war, where one turns to the other years later as they meet and says, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the first one says, no, never. And the second one says, well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? The end of exile is when we see all the stories of what should be and what is and what will be passing through the mind and we rest in some place of peace in the heart. Another poem. This is from Naomi Nye, a Palestinian poet. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things 
feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and saved, all this must go so you know how desolate, desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Mayan Indian in a white poncho lies dead beside the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the same simple breath kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow and speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes, sends you out in the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like the shadow or your dearest friend. What happens is we see all these stories come and go. And in this retreat, we find a place to rest, to not be in exile. And in this, from this place of knowing, we also discover how each story is mind-made, is in itself like a dream. As we sit here, a whole other world comes in our mind. Rabindranath Tagore said, most people believe the mind to be a mirror, accurately reflecting the world outside them, and not realizing the fact that the mind is actually the principal element of creation. So creative, every story and possibility. But all of them, as we look in this place of stillness, become emptier, more dreamlike, which is the truth. There was a woman that I worked with some years ago who came to see me after doing a lot of other healing work for some grave pains in her past. And in her body and heart and mind, she carried not only this great pain a kind of underlying grief, but the depression of years that held it down. This was her exile from herself. And as she began to explore reclaiming herself, Senjo coming back together again, oh, from underneath the depression and out, the things cast away, came an enormous fire of rage at what had happened to her. And she was really terrified of it. What if I feel this? I mean, this is the kind of rage that takes napalm and just burns everything in sight. You know that kind? You do. I know you do. You know. This is the kind that destroys things because the pain is so great. 
it will leave nothing left if I let this out. So we worked for a time together. And finally, when the time was right, said, all right, let's see if we can allow that to be known in its fullness. And she said, oh, I'm terrified of this. We worked with the fear, and then she closed her eyes. We were meditating together. Said, all right, let the fire, let the image, the feeling, the energy come as big as it will. Oh, and it was huge. It burned the earth, the sun, the solar system. The galaxies burned everything. She was terrified. It was so great. And it lasted for a while and a while. And finally, I looked at her, and she was still sitting there with her eyes closed. I said, so what is there now? And she said, nothing. And this is what I feared the most. It is all dead, destroyed, and this is how I felt. I've destroyed it all, and there's nothing. Nothing will come. I said, well, stay with that. Be in the nothing. I said, it's not just nothing. It's ash. The universe is destroyed, all of it to ash. And she stayed with the ash for a long time. And I said, what's happening? She said, nothing. It's dead. It will always be dead forever. I said, well, let's see what happens. Stay with it for a while longer. Let some time pass. Maybe 10,000 years. Maybe a million years. Maybe 500 million years. This is in the course of five minutes or 10. Let another half a billion years pass, as long as it needs. Two billion, five billion, okay. She's sitting there, nothing's happening. I'm just waiting, waiting patiently. Finally, I see her head shake a little. I said, what was that? She said, nothing. I said, all right, leave that nothing be there. Seems like more time has to pass. Another million, 10 million, 50 million years, 500 million years. She shook her head again. I said, what's happening? She said, over there in the corner of the universe, there's a little bit of light. I said, do you want to see what it is? She said, no. I said, well, wait a few more thousand million years. <laughs> Waited a bit longer. Finally, I said, well, what's happening? She said, I guess I better go look. And her eyes kind of moved and her expression changed. I said, what's there? She said, there's light and there's this beautiful little planet and it's blue or green. And I said, and what's happening there? And she said, new little things are starting to grow again on it. If we allow ourselves to stay in the present, in the reality of the present, not only does there come a reclaiming of life, of this life, but we also discover this emptiness or spaciousness that holds it all, out of which it all comes, no matter how painful or beautiful or exalted or difficult, it arises and moves in its cycle back into this wholeness. It opens in space, in ease, and we can rest in the space of what Guy called pure awareness, the knowing of all these cycles. And he talked about how that is at least one language for understanding this freedom. It opens in space, in ease, and we can rest in the space of what Guy called 
pure awareness, the knowing of all these cycles. And he talked about how that is at least one language for understanding this freedom. But back to this question of freedom. Where is freedom? Is it in the space? When Guy spoke last night, he pointed to the fact that freedom could not be a thing, or a place, or a condition. Freedom is in all these things. Freedom in all these things is letting go. And maybe even letting go isn't the right word because we think of letting go as getting rid of stuff. Maybe sometimes a better word for it is letting be. That's the freedom. And it's an amazing act in any moment when we let it be as it is. The freedom of not having any idea that we impose about how it is supposed to be. So the Buddha says, seeing misery in all views and opinions of how the world should be without adopting any of them, searching for truth, I discovered true peace. Not by any opinion, nor by tradition or knowledge or virtue or holy works can anyone say that freedom exists, nor by their absence. But for the sage in whom the views of equal and unequal, better and worse, do not exist, does not cling to these, with whom could such a one enter into dispute? For one who is free from such views, there are no entanglements. They are delivered from conflict and folly, but those who grasp after views and opinions, they wander about in this world annoying people. Freedom is not in a thing or a place, but in the letting go. And in letting go, there's a wholeness that arises as we live in the reality of the present. My dear friend Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of this English monastery, now abbot of many monasteries, American meditation teacher, said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and planning and struggling. You simplify your meditation down to just two words, let go, rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidharma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Madhyamaka and get ordinations in Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this in my practice for years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, 
let go until that desire would fade away. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. This freedom is not far away. The freedom of the heart is here. And it's inviting that chant we do in the evening. Nirvana is inviting. And nirvana has a very specific meaning. It means the end of grasping and struggle, the coolness of heart, the peace, the end of exile, the wholeness. Now one of our teachers, where Guy, and Carol were both ordained as a monk and nun, where I practiced as a monk. I think Franz was also a monk there, was this wonderful forest master, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu. And he used to sit under the trees with the chickens running around his feet and this bench and just wait for people to come and go and say, sit down, let's talk about liberation. That was what he liked to do for 70 years or something like that. And he, taught, he was very plain spoken, although he was a great scholar. And so in one of his Dharma talks, and then he published it, he talked about nirvana as a public health measure. <laughs> and I'll read you just a few pieces of what he said. Nirvana is the natural condition. It is that coolness of heart and mind when grasping and hatred and identification drop away. Nirvana is a great public health measure. In the text, it is called the cessation of suffering. And nirvana is used in many different ways. It's the nirvana of the candle flame when it burns down and goes out. It's the nirvana of the stovetop when you turn it off and it cools down. It's the nirvana after you've been sitting here in some snit about something or terribly upset or angry or frustrated or, or hating yourself. And then all of a sudden you go out and there's the sunset and you breathe and it all just says, oh, that's all right, is a moment of nirvana. Anyone can see this coolness of nirvana that results when we release grasping. Anyone can see that without nirvana, living things would die or become insane. Let us consider the fact that we survive because there are periods of peace in our life over and over again, of freedom, from this burning, a wholeness. As a matter of fact, if you look closely, you'll see that there are many throughout the day. And this periodic nirvana keeps us alive without any exceptions. Periods of rest in the body, periods of not wanting, of not resisting and struggling, periods of just being. When the mind and heart is free, 
from desires, from struggles, in a moment a little nirvana comes in. Pay attention to this, he said. How can we not say that nirvana is a public health measure good for everyone? He goes on, we cannot create this nirvana because it is independent of all the changing conditions, but we can create the circumstances for knowing it or resting in it. To say that there is no nirvana in your own life and practice is absolutely wrong, because nirvana, the condition of nirvana, is ever-present in nature. It's just that no one is interested in searching for it. Study it in your life. It is possible to know, to understand, to become contented, to become free. Whenever you find peace, coolness, in the body, in feeling, in heart, in mind, breathe in and breathe out and know that this is the path to your own freedom. So this freedom is found in any moment. Not the freedom to buy a particular kind of car or choose where we want to live. Those are relative freedoms that are subject to conditions. Freedom is also available when so often we cannot change conditions. The freedom of the unconditioned. So talking with Ram Dass, this fall, he'd gone once to do a little bit of teaching with Stephen Levine. Stephen kind of dragged him into the city to do this, his wheelchair and walker and speaking from the stroke so slowly, grasping for words. Still with a beautiful spirit, though. And afterwards, someone asked him, did you enjoy teaching with Stephen? And he said, not so much. You know, he can be pretty honest. So I said, why? And he laughed. He said, because they want me to be Ramdas, and I'm not him anymore. I used to surf, and now I take therapeutic baths in rehabilitation therapy. And he just recognized that he had been one thing and that that's not who he is anymore. Or Viktor Frankl, we who lived in the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they testify to the last of human freedoms the greatest, the freedom to choose your spirit in the face of any circumstance. This is the freedom in the midst of joy and sorrow, the freedom to be present for it all. As poet Wendell Berry says, the cloud is free only to go with the wind, the rain is free only in falling, the water free in its downward course, in its rising in the air. In the law, the Dharma is rest. If you love the law, if you enter singing into it as water in its descent. To connect this with the freedom of emptiness of Guy's talk, 
There's a technical term for freedom, one of them in the teachings, called bodhicitta, which means enlightened heart. And bodhicitta has two aspects. The heart of emptiness, which Guy spoke about last night, which sees it all as a reflection, a dream, that we are nothing separate, we can't possess, there's no self that's here, we are part of this changing process that exists in the timeless space of awareness. And it's there to be known in a moment. I mean, this is a dance. We are in a dance. Here's this beautiful poem that kind of reminds us. Life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time, all your weekends. And what do you get at the end of it? Death, a great reward. I think that the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first, get it out of the way. Then you live 20 years in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. Then you go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. <laughs> you become a little kid, a boy, a girl. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become tiny. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating. And you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. You get the mystery of it when it's backwards, don't you? This is what Guy was pointing to. It is that. We appear for a time and vanish. That's the heart of emptiness. The other part of bodhicitta is the heart of compassion that knows that all life is precious because it is only here for a moment. This day only exists for one small tentative day. This sunset, only once will it happen like this. And those we love, only a short time. So Zen Master Isa wrote after his daughter died, dew evaporates and all our world is dew, so dear so refreshing, so fleeting. Wisdom sees I am nothing. Love sees I am everything. Between these two my life flows. Or as it says in the Buddhist texts again, Mahamudra, and now there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize the essence of freedom. Having awakened the heart, you will spend your life working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist as separate from yourself. Those two sides. Don Juan spoke of it as controlled folly. A man or woman of knowledge sees and knows, sees that we're not going anywhere, and sees that nothing is better than anything else, 
and therefore their only tie to their fellow humans is their controlled folly. And thus a man or a woman of knowledge sweats and puffs and looks like any ordinary person and acts and appears as they do, except that the folly of their life is under control. So whatever happens, they live in peace. It's not a removal from life, this freedom, but here and now, in this place. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your life depends upon it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To let go is the practice, and with it, there is a wholeness, a reclaiming, the end of exile, the living in the present. Another story for you. Your son is here, the nurse repeated to an old man, said to an old man. She had to repeat it several times before the man's eyes opened. He was heavily sedated and only partially conscious after a massive heart attack he'd suffered the night before. He could see the dim outline of a young man in a Marine Corps uniform standing beside the bed. The old man reached out his hand. The Marine wrapped his toughened fingers around the old man's limp hand and squeezed gently and sat on a chair by the bed. And all through the night, the young Marine sat in the poorly lighted ward, holding the old man's hand and offering words of encouragement, the oxygen tank, all of that. The nurse said, why don't you take rest? But he stayed, whispering comforting words once in a while and just resting, sitting. Near dawn, the old man died. The Marine placed the old man's lifeless hand on the bed, left to find the nurse. And when the nurse took him away, the young man waited. When she returned, she began to offer words of sympathy but the Marine interrupted her. What was the name of this man, he asked. Startled, she replied, wasn't he your father? No, he wasn't, the young man said. I've never seen him before in my life. Then why didn't you tell me, she asked. Well, I knew there'd been a mistake by the people who sent me home on an emergency furlough. What happened was there were two of us with the same name from the same city. They sent me by mistake. And then he said, but I also knew he needed his son, and it was too late for his son to get here. I could tell he was too sick to know which was which anyway, and when I realized how much he needed to have someone there, I just decided to stay. If any brother or sister is sick, that the Buddha, Jesus, the same, and you care for them, you care for me. Each moment is a chance for struggle or freedom. At first on retreats, we sit and walk and wash the pots, and there's so much struggle, so much exile from ourself, from our bodies, from our feelings, our pain, our conflict. You know how much there is. The goal is not to be anywhere else. The goal 
As Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, the goal of practice is to keep our beginner's mind each moment fresh and new. This allows us both to be still and to act. We live in the reality of the present. As it says in the Tao, rushing into action you fail, trying to grasp things you lose them, forcing a project to completion you ruin what was almost ripe. Therefore the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as in the beginning. She has nothing and thus has nothing to lose. What she desires is to unlearn. She simply reminds people of who they have always been. She cares for nothing but living in the Tao, and thus she cares for all things. There is a freedom in the reality of this present, a natural freedom. It's called Adidana, Adisila, Adipanya, the, the natural freedom of the heart. And it has generosity and a natural protection of one another because we're not separate. When we're really here, we feel it. You can't harm another being if you're present in your body and heart and mind. As the poet William Stafford wrote, a candle flame in Tibet leans when I move. In this present moment we know our connection to one another. And thus we rest in what is the unborn. My teacher Ajahn Shah put it this way. He said we chant and we take refuge in the Buddha or Buddha nature and Dharma Sangha, what is this Buddha? When we see with the eye of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body or history, that Buddha is the ground of being, the truth of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened, never born, never died. This timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place. And when we take refuge in this moment in the Buddha, all things in the world are free for us. There is freedom, an unparalleled freedom in the midst of all things. And you are the space of that freedom. It is here and now. You know, people come for interviews and they talk about their experiences, the grief they have, the fear, the loneliness of a lifetime, the joy or excitement, the boredom, this loving kindness and spaciousness, the concerns. And when I listen, each time, if I'm present, I think to myself, yes, great, fabulous. Grief, the loneliness of a life, joy, spaciousness, boredom, fear, metta, freedom, yes, to each one. 
because it's not in the changing conditions. But the great heart of a Buddha is that resting place here and now. The letting go is the end of exile, the coming back to ourself. And the saints and sages did not live anywhere else but here in these very human bodies and lives like ours. This is the place. There is only one place of freedom, and that is now. This is the pure land. So I end with a passage from Zen master Hakuin. All beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. That's us. How sad that people ignore what is present and search for the truth afar, like someone in the midst of water, crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Those who turn around and bear witness to the true nature, there is no coming and going. We are never astray. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness. How bright the full moon of compassion. Nirvana, right here before our eyes. This very place is the pure land of the lotus, this very body, the Buddha. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.